scriptures, Isaiah 59. It is really kind of talking about the pitch, the, the, the tar that covered the outside of Noah's ark. So it would seal that up. And so you've got these people inside the ark and they're being protected from the deluge and the floods that surround them. So there's, it's like a protection around the people inside the ark. That is the atonement. Now, the way that most, the other time, the way that I've seen the atonement read in, in reading uh, Hebraic uh, roots, is that it's seen as an embrace. And that this arm, we're going to talk about his arm a number of times today. And so you get this sense that the arm of the Lord and his arms wrapped around us and protecting us, kind of like the pitch on the, the ark. Okay? Does that make sense? Now we talk about power. That his arm does mean power, and so it is his power that's going to protect and keep out the elements and wrap us securely. You know, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you in. He talks in his own semblance about, I've been raised up so that I may, his, my arms are outstretched so that I can pull you in and surround you with my power. Okay? So, um, and he wondered that there was no intercessor. That means somebody that's going to step up and stand in the breach between us and the elements and those that are out there. Okay? And didn't you hear that in conference? Just this sense of what is out there and here's what we're going to have to do to be surrounded by His power, by His strength. Okay? So His arm brought salvation unto Him. It's righteousness. It sustained Him. For He put on righteousness as a breastplate. Now, before we go here, let's do this. Here's where we are in Isaiah 59. Uh, he put on righteousness as a breastplate. For just a second, because remember, this is, this is poetry. So now he starts to paint a picture, and this is a picture we should recognize. Right? Okay? So let's turn over for a second to Ephesians 6. We kind of know this. This is where we're going to take on what? The whole armor of God, right? Okay. Take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand. Stand, okay? Stand in holy places. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, having the breastplate of righteousness. Now the breastplate uh, is obviously the big front piece. Why, why is this the breastplate of righteousness? What's it covering? Our heart. So the breastplate of righteousness, our, our hearts have to be turned to righteousness. Okay. So we're going to have this breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is how beautiful upon the mountain are these feet. Uh, and above all, the shield of faith that you can withstand the fiery darts. And take the helmet of salvation. Okay. 
So we got the helmet. You get these two images. The helmet of salvation. The breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness protects the heart. The helmet of salvation is protecting the head. And so why, why in this case do we need a helmet of salvation? Our thoughts, our focus, and where's salvation? In Christ. Who do we think about? Who, who are our thoughts dwelling on? So you get this, our heart, our hearts are in the right place, breastplate, our thoughts, our focus, helmet of salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. And the sword of the Spirit, I love that, the only offensive weapon in his arsenal on this one for us is the sword of the Spirit and it's the double-edged sword with which we, we cut through the world around us, okay? Which is the Word of God. Okay, so now you got that one in mind. Now listen to the words that are applied to the Savior with this backdrop here. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate. Isn't that the same with us? Okay, same breastplate. Okay, helmet of salvation upon his head. Oh, great, same one. He has two articles of clothing that we do not have and is never suggested. Only the Savior carries these next two. And there's a fabulous message here. And he put on the garments of vengeance. He's going to put, I'm not sure what the garment of vengeance looks like. I think it's red. We're going to talk about that in, in Isaiah 63. He's the one that gets to carry the garment of vengeance. And he's also clad with Zeal, and the word zeal actually means fury. That, that's, the, that's the Hebraic word. Fury. He is clad with fury as a cloak. Wow. So you get this sense. Now, now I want to stop for just a second. Yes, ma'am? You annoy away. Yeah, fire away. Um, I interpret it a little bit differently when it talks about like this on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. I interpret it as Christ is going to face the adversary in ways that we never will. And is it okay if I read it? Yeah, this please. From, um, this is from Daisy Thomas in uh, Jesus the Christ. He says, and, and this is talking about Gethsemane, what he faced, and why he would need that breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. It says, in that hour of anguish, Christ met and overcame all the horrors that Satan, the prince of this world, could inflict. The frightful struggle incident to the temptations immediately following the Lord's baptism was surpassed and overshadowed by the supreme contest with the powers of evil. Supreme contest. Yeah. Yeah, you get that same sense. Because we're going to talk about his enemies in just a second. So, so you're right on there. Um, Okay, so we get this garments of vengeance. Now, he's going to say, all vengeance is mine. So what is it? Now, are we, now, are we supposed to be angry? We're told that anger is a sin. 
We're supposed to repent of anger. We're not supposed to be angry. What is the difference between our anger and God's anger? Because this is because we're just getting started here. He's he's coming with some stuff, and he's not happy. I love the, the billboard. God's coming, and he's not happy. Okay, yeah. We don't have we don't have the full perspective that he has. Okay. So we can't honestly judge the way he can. So sometimes when we're anger, that is that is uh, we're doing it based on poor information. Mm-hmm. He came first with peace, though. He leads with peace, right? The first time he came. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, he's like doing his thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's that in the chopping off the arms. The, the guys in primary love that stuff. Yeah. Sometimes our anger is to get out our frustration. So what's the difference between his anger and our anger? We've been talking about this a lot in seminary right now because we're writing the Liberty Jail sections. And oh, yeah. Yeah, and he's talking about vengeance as well. And sure. in fact, it really came up today because of the opposition at conference. And the kids were like, well, those people are like fighting against the prophet. And don't they know that that's where this kind of thing start? Because we've been learning about this is a period when a lot of people apostatize and things like that. And um, it really brings into um, just talking about it a lot with the kids. And, and when you look at like this, he's our judge, and he knows. And even the saints earlier in the church were told, you know, they were to write down the things, the, the grievances, and keep record. But it was the Lord's place to give retribution. They didn't have to fight their battles. And all through Isaiah, the Lord says he fights our battles. Yeah. There, it's the same message in Isaiah that's in the Doctrine and Covenants that I think will come out now. You know, we're heading into that time period and the Lord fights our battles because He is the only one who knows the desires of their hearts and their motivations and all those things. He knows what righteous judgment will be and we don't. Right. So His anger is just and righteous. Ours is sometimes out of our own misperception. Yeah, or out of our own pride or out of our own sense. And in fact, Missouri Liberty Jail. <laughs> They kept being told, don't fight back. Don't fight back. And, you know, Lyman White and Porter Rockwell and some of the other guys were going, well, that's stupid. <laughs> you know, they burn our farm, that we'll burn theirs. And then it just kind of got out of control. Okay? So you're right. Part of it is the fact that he is allowed to be vengeful and angry because he knows the entire picture. Right? When we're doing anger, the reason he tells us to hold back from... From vengeance, we're supposed to forgive 70 times 7. Sometimes the same person 70 times 7. You know, well, no, I want to be angry. Well, a lot of times, in, in, again, in my office, we talk about the fact that anger is a secondary emotion. The primary emotions are really pain and fear. And generally, when we're ang- if somebody's angry, I want to know what they're afraid of. If somebody's angry, I want to know how, what they're hurting from. Is it also because the Savior's the only one that has paid for both the giver and the receiver? Yes, that's a good way to... Because He's paid for all of that. 
And we're going to talk about the fact that he's not executing vengeance on people. He's executing vengeance on deeds. And we'll talk about deeds in a second. Okay? But we do have to keep in mind, uh, I, I love the, 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 the analogy in the Chronicles of Narnia of Aslan the lion, the Christ figure, and they say Aslan is on the move, and they had, well, who is this Aslan? Well, he's a lion. Is he a tame lion? No, he's not a tame lion. <laughs> but he's good. They, they get this sense that I love of all the images that that Lewis could have used to depict the Savior. It isn't like he was depicting him as a dove, you know, or as a little lamb. He depicts him as a lion. And in the in the 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 last battle, he's not a very nice lion, you know. He's going to roar and jump and pounce and tear. And we and, and the, this this is the image problem sometimes we have with people that will look at the scriptures and they go. Gee, the God of the New Testament seems kind of nice. I'm not sure I like the God of the Old Testament. That God of the Old Testament is kind of mean and judgmental, and you know, there's blood happening, and seems to be two different guys. Are they two different people? No, they're the same people. Okay, we have seen the Lamb, but what he's about to say is at the second coming. When I come and stand on the Mount of Olives and all the armies are camped about Jerusalem, you're going to see the lion. I will come with vengeance for a clothing and clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, and to the islands out there, even those in long distances away, he will repay recompense. There will be an accounting. There are consequences. And he will come as a lion. Okay? So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west. Because he's coming from the east. And when the enemy shall come like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. You just get this moment that there, he is going to come in power and there will be no mistake who he is. Yeah. And isn't that why the Jews didn't believe that he was the Savior? Because he was so gentle and calm. And he was supposed to come like this and defend it's who them it's who and they were rescue waiting them. For. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Now, this is such an important point that I wanted to line up. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to line this up with Isaiah... 63, because I, I started, I didn't, in any of the commentaries, I didn't come across this, and then it just jumped out at me, and I spent some time going back and forth, going, wow, look at what Isaiah and what the Lord is doing here. So, he saw, so, so let's get our, our tenses right. So, who's the he in, in 16? And he saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no intercessor, therefore, his arm brought salvation. Who's talking? Probably Elohim. Okay, his, you know, the, the, the Savior. Okay, we're getting it from a kind of a, a second or third, and it could be Isaiah, it could be Elohim, but it's not first person. Right? Describing that this person stood up in the council in heaven and said, there needs to be an intercessor, 
Nobody else really is qualified to do it. I'm the firstborn, therefore I'm supposed to do it. There is no intercessor. To, there, so here I am, send me. I'm him. I'll do it. And when I come, I'll come in vengeance. Look what we get in Isaiah 63. So important is this concept. And I looked. Now we're going to get first person describing this. I looked and there was no help. I wondered that there was none to behold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me and my fury had upheld me. We're going to get it. First of all, third person. Suddenly we're going to get first person. And you get it twice. Are you talking about third person on Esau? Are you talking Elohim or are you talking Jehovah? I think third person is talking about the Savior. So it could be Isaiah, it could be Elohim saying, and he, talking about what Jesus did, and he did these things. And now we're going to get, this is a little bit like DNC 19, where we get the atonement first person. And I, you know, and I went through these pains and how, how painful you know not. And he's going to give it first person. Well, here's his first person. And it's in Isaiah 63. It comes just a few verses later. I looked and there was none to help. I beheld and there was none to be uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me and my fury, it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in my nature, and I make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. I'm coming in power. I'm coming cloaked in vengeance. Now, the next part here though is interesting because now we get this moment when the translators of the Bible, uh, Tyndale, uh, a couple of others, uh, Coverdell, were trying to take the, the Hebrew concept and put it into an English word. So they made it up a word. And, I, and we think this was uh, Coverdell who did this one. And I will mention the loving kindness. <laughs> yeah, it's a great word. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. Wait, stop. We were just given... What was the image we were just given? Wow. He has loosed the faithful lightning of His terrible Swiss sword and I'm coming invention and you're in so much trouble. And, you know, here He's coming as a lion and in the middle of all of that, look at what Isaiah goes. Um, let me mention the loving kindness of the Lord. He's not a tame lion, but he's good. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed upon a bestowed. It must be. Yeah, because I, I didn't even type this. I just copied this from LDS.org. It's supposed to be bestowed, right? Okay. Okay, bestowed on us and the great goodness towards the house of Israel 
which he hath bestowed upon them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. Are you saying there was, if you look at the actual phrase, there was it, they, it, it was a sentence about this long, really, if you took it literally in Hebrew, his, his uh, caring towards, and then they just said, no, let's just, like I say, Coverdale took it and said, let's just make one word out of it, loving kindness. So it's not a typo. So they just made up a word. Now, Tyndale did that a lot, too. They just made up words. Uh, to try and express what the prophet was trying to say. Joseph Smith used to say that uh, sometimes when he was translating uh, or or receiving revelation, he was trying to convey what was in the prophet's heart when it was written. Okay, I think that's one of the reasons why Brigham Young said that had Joseph translated the Book of Mormon when when he was older, we would have had a different Book of Mormon. Because there would have been more advanced thoughts there as Joseph was maturing. Interesting thought. Okay, yeah. So it's interesting because it's saying, according to, on the left side, according to their deeds, they'll be repaid with fury, but on the right hand side, it's talking about according to the deeds, you with kindness. Yes. And, and so now let's go back, and now let's go back to what, uh, what uh, President Uchtdorf was talking about. Because we want to say, okay, and the Book of Mormon seems to say, okay, you're going to be repaid according to your works, right? And if there be good, you're going to get good stuff, and if you're bad, you're toast. Okay? And he's saying, according to their deeds, I'm coming with vengeance and power, and I'm going to repay, and it's going to be bad. (laughs) What about the deeds of... The house of Israel. What is he expecting to have access to the loving kindness that Isaiah is talking about? What deeds are we talking about? Not the good deeds. Go back to what's the clothing we're wearing? The breastplate of righteousness. And that is our righteousness based on our hearts. What about our, and our salvation is coming from, our helmet of salvation, which is? Our thoughts. And all he's saying to Israel is, I'm not counting your deeds, I'm looking on your heart. And that's what, that's what President Uchtdorf is trying to say. That at the end of the day, Judgment Day is not about an accounting of a ledger. It will be, as President Oaks, has, as Elder Oaks has said, it will be about who we have become. Judgment Day is who we are, not what we've done. Grace is applied because of who we are, not what we've done. Righteousness is about where our hearts and desires have been have grown to. That's why, why do we keep the commandments? Because we love Him. We keep the commandments because it's an extension of the devotion that we pay to Him. We don't keep the commandments because we're trying to keep in our head a running uh, list to see if we got an A yet in the course. Absolutely, the, the reason for the commandments and the. And the ordinances and everything else is to train our hearts to be like Him. 
It's the path. Exactly. So that's why at the same time we get this dual image of this God that's coming and we'll see him in a second and he's coming. What color? Red. It's coming in red. And on one side we have this vengeful cloak of fury and on the other side, oh, there's the loving kindness. Okay? All right. All right. So now we get to Isaiah 61. First verse. Did I tell you we're starting on Jeremiah next week? (laughs) Reminder. We really, really are. Okay. Now. So here comes this. We're about to learn about this God. And really... Uh, 59, 60 through 66. This is so focused on here. Here's most of this is second coming. It's not so much first coming as much as it is second coming. But there's a little mix of that. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me. Okay. In the Hebrew, uh, this this God that's coming. The, the Hebrew word is Mashiach, and it means anointed one. What's the word in Greek? Christ. Both Mashiach and Christ both mean the anointed one, meaning that he has been anointed. And in, in our parlance, we would say, we don't always use the word anoint, we might use the word <coughs> set apart. Now think about that, because, you know, I mean, you may get called to teach in the nursery, and and then the bishopric member says, meet at the bishop's office afterwards so that we can set you apart. We use that pretty commonly. Okay? Setting apart means what? We're going to take of all of the people in the congregation, we're going to pick one... We're going to set you apart. We're going to pull you out of the group. We're going to put you here. And we're going to surround you by creatures. But before we surround you by creatures, what we're going to do is set you apart. We're going to give you spiritual power and and strength. And in some cases, actual priesthood keys. But in the case of this one, we're going to set you apart from everybody else that you have inspiration and guidance, but you have been sanctified. Sanctifying is to take something that is common and make it sacred. It, we're, we're setting it apart. And there are going to be certain callings for which there needs to, they are going to be anointed. And an anointing in this case, sometimes with oil. The priests in... Uh, the high priests of, Le- of Levite serving in the temple, they would, anoint, they would be anointed with oil, meaning that they have been set apart. Meaning that you are no longer common. You're no longer like everybody else. You, you have been set apart from the world to a specific responsibility. Now you're going to be cleansed and washed first, and then you're going to be anointed and set apart. So he's the... So, he, so this is the anointed one. The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. 
as Mashiach to do what? And then there's going to be several things here. Specifically, I am now set apart to go among these people on the earth and do several things. One, to preach good tidings unto the meek. Wait a minute, just unto the meek? Why the meek? They're the the ones that are listening. Number one, and they're the ones who have been prepared. They're the ones, how's their breastplate of righteousness doing? We're going to preach good tidings to them because they have a, underneath that breastplate, we're going to find a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's why you need a breastplate. Because I'm kind of vulnerable. If I'm going to, sometimes people say, well, if I'm going to admit that I'm powerless over stuff and I'm going to turn my will over to God, that's kind of vulnerable. People could take advantage of me. Yes, they could. If you have a broken heart and you're going to have a believing nature, yeah, you're really vulnerable. Unless you're doing what? You're where you're wearing the breastplate. That's right. Think if you have a broken arm, what are you going to wear? The breastplate of cast. You're going to protect the brave. Well, if you're going to have a broken heart and contrite spirit, you've got to have the breastplate to protect you. Okay? So, I'm going to do three things. I'm going to preach good tidings to the weak. He's there, meek. Weak? Yes. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You love that sense of binding and healing and wrapping and the brokenhearted. Okay? And to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, there's a specific... Let's go to Isaiah 61 for a second. I I wasn't. (laughs) I was on the PowerPoint. But you were already there. I know. I got you. Okay. Where did it go? Oh, I didn't like this. Okay. Uh, we're going to go to... I know I put it somewhere, but obviously... Let's go to Jeremiah 34. Because I want you to see what it is he's talking about here when he talks about... Because this this phrase, going to proclaim liberty to the captives, has a very specific meaning in Judaism. And and to understand what the Savior is doing, you've got to understand this phrase. Uh, Verse 8. And this is the word that came unto Jeremiah. Gosh, we should start studying Jeremiah next week. I think we will. (laughs) Came unto Jeremiah from the Lord that after Zedekiah had made covenant with all people that were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty unto them. That proclaim liberty. That every man should let his manservant and every man his maidservant, being Hebrew or Hebrewess, to go free. Whoa, what are we talking about here? 
Liberating the captive, specifically meaning he is proclaiming a year of jubilee. That remember that even for slaves, there was a Sabbath. There was, on the seventh year, if you were a slave, you were going to be set free so that you could rest. Meaning you could rejoice. That is a jubilee year. Yeah. No, it was always. The idea of a jubilee year was that somebody, and, and, and listen closely, because there's a huge application here in our lives, that somebody could only serve you for six years. In the seventh year, you would be proclaimed free. You can't, you have to be set free from the slavery. Okay? At some time, you have to be let off the hook. You can only enslave somebody for so long. Hang with that. Okay. Let the wheels turn. Now, here's what here was the problem at the time, and this is one of the reasons we've always said if if you want to be if you're a if you're a righteous city and you really, really, really want to get destroyed and leveled right to the ground. You need to do two things. You need to stone the prophets, starve the poor. Okay? Wow. You're about to see why it is Lehi had to leave town. Verse 10. And when all the princes and all the people that had entered into the covenant of the law of Moses, but it is the jubilee, the letting go of the slaves had entered into this covenant, heard that everyone should let his manservant and everyone his maidservant go free, and that none should serve them, them anymore, then they obeyed and let them go. Oh, except 11. But afterward they turned and caused the servants and the handmaid, who they had let go, let go free, to return and brought them into subjection for servants and handmaids. We're going to let you go just kidding. <laughs> we will let you go today. We'll put you back under slavery tomorrow. So they brought them in and at a time when the Lord says, your covenant with me was that somebody is only going to serve you for six years and then we will declare a jubilee and they no longer have to serve you. Therefore the Lord came unto Jeremiah and he said, I made a covenant at the end of seven years let every man go free. They wouldn't do it. Uh, you have not hearkened unto me and proclaiming liberty. Uh, I will give unto men who transgress my covenant and all the priests. Uh, and basically what he's going to say, oh, uh, verse 20, I will give them into their hands of their enemy. Why is it that Nebuchadnezzar was able to roar through Jerusalem in 585. This is one of the main reasons why. They were oppressing the poor. And in this case, the poor were those that were servants. That should have been cast free and worked. Okay, now. If we go back to Isaiah 63... Yeah. Jubilee year was every fifty years. Yeah. 
But there was, there were, that's when the land got to return to all of that. But what he's saying is that also every, but, the, but for servants, apparently it was every seven years. So there's two levels of jubilee. Okay? Uh, now, so what part of what the Lord was going to have to do He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, by the way, so now, now let's take the message. Are there those who are servants to us? Yeah. Bishop is a servant. Who else? Who else is in servitude to us? Yeah. You're thinking in terms of servants. Yeah. Think about on a more personal level. Who might be serving you because of debts they owe? How do they end up in servants? Well, they owe us something, right? Is it those that owe us? Who is serving us because they owe us? Somebody who has offended you. Somebody who has hurt you. Somebody that has harmed you in some way. In a sense, they owe you a bit because they've done you wrong. And what he's saying in terms of let the servants go, let the oppressed go free, he's saying what? Forgive. Forgive. Let it go. <laughs> let them off the hook. Quit punishing them. Let them go free. Yes, but they owe me. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they do. They did stuff to you they shouldn't have done. Let them go free. Vengeance is mine. Your job is to forgive 70 times 7. But dang it, it's not fair. They owe me. They hurt my kids. I was abused as a child. And it's, and it's affected my whole life. They've done things against my family. Yes, all true and painful and let it go. My husband had an affair. Yes, let it go. Forgive. Let the oppressed go free. Vengeance is mine. I will take care. There will be consequences, but it's not your job on the consequence end. I will do the consequence part. Let him go. Let him be free. That makes sense. Hard lesson, and may and sometimes this idea of forgiving and letting go may be the hardest thing that's required of any of us, especially if we're saying, "Yeah, the pain was real, the damage was real. It is, it is," and let it go, because there is a time in this process. Now, I, I do like the idea, by the way, in, in this seven years of saying, I, "I understand you may not do it in the first year." You may have a hard time doing it in the first month after somebody has hurt you. I get it. But there's gonna, so there's going to be a period of time. But there is a moment out here after sufficient length of time to let it go. A, a, a wonderful uh, husband that I talked to a couple of years ago. And uh, his, his wife had had an affair. And... And she confessed and was going through a lot of pain. And immediately he said, I forgive her. Like the day after. 
I have forgiven. I'm fine. Yeah, that was my reaction too. Uh huh. And then he was angry at a lot of things she did during the year. And as I like, that that forgiveness has to come, but there may have to be a sufficient period of time so that your heart can get right to be able to do that. But ultimately, we're supposed to let the captives free. Okay, that's kind of what the Savior was trying to teach us. Forgive them; they know not what they do. Yeah, but they did know. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay, um, one more link up here. And again, it's, it, the reason we do this is that whenever the Lord repeats something more than once, that's when it's time for us to pay attention. Because we've talked about these before. When we were talking last time about Isaiah 58, and we were talking about the feast fast, or the fast feasts, that all feasts are fasts and all fasts are feasts. <laughs> Okay? Now, the purpose of helping us, is this not the fast I God have chosen? Remember that? To do what? What's the purpose of, of the fasting so that we can feast on the Spirit? To loose the bands of wickedness. To undo the heavy burdens. Look familiar? Just said a different way. To let the oppressed go free. In other words, one of the reasons as we become more Christ-like in our fasting and in our feasting, we begin to do the same things that He would do. To undo heavy burdens, loose the bands of wickedness, and let the oppressed go free. Let them out of jail. And ultimately, if you do that, you break every yoke. Their yoke in terms of their guilt and pain, but your yoke in terms of your own bitterness. In terms of those things that block you from being able to feel the Spirit. Okay, we've got about 20 minutes. All right. Verse 2 and 3 of Isaiah 61. This is too much. Okay. Here, here comes the acceptable year of the Lord. This is the year of the Jubilee in the sense that the, the captives are being let free, but it's also the year of Him coming. This is the acceptable year. Here it comes. And, and so it's, it's two things, right? It's an acceptable year for those that are looking for Him, that have waited for Him, and it's also a day of vengeance for those that weren't looking for Him and would rather not see Him because they want to be doing wickedness. Now, He's going to comfort all that mourn to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. Mourning from all the oppression that they've received, all the stuff that's going on. Okay, now, what's going to happen to these that are mourning in Zion? Listen to these phrases, and it, and, and, you just, and, and it amazes me. Okay? And give unto them what? So that they don't have to mourn. Beauty, it says. Now, I, I, I went to several different commentaries, and I kept getting the same thing so that I wasn't 
seeing something I wasn't supposed to see. And all the commentaries agreed that the word beauty means a crown and it specifically meant in this context that it, it was a specific bonnet made of, li of fine linen. Okay. The, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, it is. But it was also to be kind of a crown. It's a crowning piece of linen that that we wear. Now, uh, in in some cases throughout history, uh, th this this crown of fine linen was something you'd wear on your head before you put a crown on. So it'd be, it would sit on the head, meaning that there's a crown coming. But certainly in this case, it was specifically talking about those that mourn, I will give them beauty, meaning a, a, a uh, crown or a bonnet of fine linen instead of ashes. Which is kind of important because when a lot of times we talk about they would be mourning, they would be mourning in sackcloth and ashes. Why sackcloth? Well, it was rough. It was, a, it was a wild weaving. It wasn't fine linen. Who got to wear the fine linen in ancient Jerusalem? Royalty. The wealthy and specifically royalty. royalty and those in the temple. That's, by the way, that's why it's an important point to notice that in the, in the uh, Lehi's dream and those in the great and spacious building that are doing all the mocking, what are they wearing? Fine linen. That's why Hugh Nibley used to say that the great and spacious building was a temple gone dark. Okay? Alright, so, but he's saying, I'm going to take those that mourn and I'm going to give them beauty I'm going to give them this templeness for ashes. I'm going to give them the oil of joy for mourning. Oh, now wait. Love this phrase. When we talk generally about oil, what, what are we using oil for? Anointing what? The ill, those that are sick, those that are broken. And we're going to give them, an, and, and so you love this imagery of this oil of, I don't know if we always think about, well, we need to get some olive oil because they're sick and we need to go anoint them so that they can then seal the anointing so that then they can be blessed and they're going to feel better. Do we always think about that as an oil of joy? There is oil in other places that are meant to be joy. That are meant to be that anointing part of being blessed and empowered and, and that it's to bring us joy. And he's saying to those that are mourning, there will be oil and it will help set you apart to happiness and will heal and bind up the brokenhearted. That's what I will do. That's why I've always loved the imagery that if we're saying we're using olive oil and that, it, that it's very moment when it's broken down and it's being crushed and it's pouring out of the bottom of the wine vat as it's coming out. What color is it? Red. 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 So in, a, in essence that, 
I love the fact that if I'm going to be giving somebody a blessing and I'm using olive oil, that traditionally that oil may be red, like the Savior's blood. That that's why it's there. It's like His blood is between my hand and your, the crown of your head. That anointing grace, that His power is right there. That's the connectedness. Okay? The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I will give you a crown. I will give you an anointing. And I will give you a garment for those that mourn. That, for those that are going to get all this, that they may be called trees of righteousness. The, the, the imagery, I just, I just love this. You're going to be my, in fact he calls it, the planting of the Lord. Now, if I put it in here. Plant, no, I didn't. Um, the, the, the planting of the Lord, this word, kind of, oh, I did put it. Uh, 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 uh. Ah, there it is. Okay. Those trees of righteousness. The word is actually, most of the time, it's only used once as a tree. The, the word tree here only translates as a tree once. Most of the time it's, it's translated as ram. Uh, ram? Ram of righteousness? What's the image that you get with a ram? Yeah, headbutting, yeah. <laughs> And horn, and but just strong. I'm going to stand right here. You can't make me move. I will be that tree of planting. I will be strong as a ram. Okay. All right. The planting of the Lord. Okay. Let's do this. Let's go to Isaiah 63 for just a moment. How are we doing so far? Yes, we are. Kind of wrap this up here. I'm, I'm dumping a lot on you here. I'm, I apologize. Uh, 63. Who is this that cometh from Edom, from the east? And Edom has always been kind of associated like with Esau, meaning red. Who's coming in red? Dyed, with dyed gar garments from uh, Basra, coming from this place that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, and I speak to the righteousness mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? In other words, when he comes... And again, picture the moment. That the, the second coming, is it an event or is it a process? Both. It's both. It's a series of events. There are going to be a number of them from Adam on Ahmed and a lot of these. But specifically this crowning event where the people are in Jerusalem, the nations are pressing in against them, two-thirds of the city is gone, those that some have gone up to... Uh, uh, um, North, 
The rest are there in Jerusalem. He's pressing in. They're backed up against the tree of uh, the Mount of Olives. And then the moment comes and He comes. And He's going to come and stand on the earth. And the Mount splits. And they're able to escape through the Mount of Olives to the other side. But that very moment is what He's talking about. And at that moment He comes in red. Why red? What is it symbolic of? His blood. And? Red of anger and vengeance. And sins. He's carrying those. Okay? I, and then verse 3. And then he says, I have tread the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me. Can we go backwards uh, to another Easter a couple years ago?
One of the great consolations of this Easter season is that because Jesus walked such a long, lonely path utterly alone, we do not have to do so as we approach this Holy Week, Passover Thursday with its Paschal Lamb, Atoning Friday with its cross, Resurrection Sunday with its empty tomb. May we declare ourselves to be more fully disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in word only, and not in the flush of comfortable times, but in deed and in courage and in faith. May we stand by Jesus Christ at all times and in all things and in all places that we may be in, even until death. For surely, that is how he stood by us when it was unto death and when he had to stand entirely and utterly alone in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>I just think that of all the images he could use when he starts to describe this incredible moment when he will return after all that has been said and done in the events of this earth that he will then stand on the Mount of Olives. And you recall that the, the Jews will then say, what are thy wounds in thy hands and in his feet? And he'll say, well, these I received in the house of my friends. These I received in the house of my friends. And then I think he's going to say, and I tread the winepress alone. That's why I, I love President Holland's sentiment there that says there are those times in our life when we do feel really alone, like nobody's going to really understand. And part of what he went through for us was that process of understanding and feeling it, not just through the, the atonement, but in the events of his final days of his mortal uh, journey, that he felt very much alone and knew what it was like to even be separated from his father for, for a period of time, as we may feel. That's pretty comforting, that on this arm and on this, with this strength, we rely on because he will understand and he will fight our battles. So that's, that's my uh, challenge to us as we uh, go forward today. Let him fight our battles. Put our will on the altar, do what he wants us to do, and let him be in charge. Because he understands and he gets it. Because he's been there and that's his purpose. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this, this weekend and then this morning that you can take the things that, that we've gained and be better. Let's try, just try to be better people and more loving. Let the captives go free. If, some, if we're holding on to some stuff against somebody... Let it go. It's just not worth it. Let him handle those kind of things. And he will. I pray that we can do that and have a great week. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.